Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since it first opened its doors in 1912, the Oderborn Theatre has catered to a wide variety of interests. Located in Washington Heights, Manhattan, over the years, the 2,500-seat venue has hosted vaudeville acts, served as a movie theatre, and eventually as a meeting hall for a number of local activist groups. It was the ballroom on the second floor where these gatherings would take place, and that was where Malcolm X arrived at 2 p.m. on Sunday, February 21, 1965. By this point in time, the theatre had become an important cultural institution for Harlem's African-American community. Jazz pioneers like Red Allen and Zutty Singleton had played there, and it was the site of the New York Mardi Gras Festival, where once a year the King and Queen of Harlem were crowned. The crowd that had gathered that day were not there for music, however. Instead, they had come to hear the words of one of the most significant and controversial figures of the day. In the aftermath of his highly publicized split from the Nation of Islam, the black nationalist organization where Malcolm had made his name, his presence at the theater marked the start of the next chapter in his career as an activist campaigning for the advancement of black rights. He was there to launch the charter for his recently established group, the Organization of Afro-American Unity. As he took the stage, Malcolm's physical presence commanded attention before he even opened his mouth. Standing at six foot three, dressed in an immaculate suit and sporting his now iconic brow-line glasses, the 39-year-old had an innate charisma that inspired awe and envy in equal measure. Malcolm greeted the audience, but before he could begin his speech, he was interrupted by a scuffle breaking out in the crowd. As his security rushed to break up the fight, a smoke bomb went off in the ballroom, causing panic amongst the audience, who rose to their feet and began rushing for the exits. Malcolm, seeking to bring order to proceedings, stepped out from behind the podium, calling for calm. Suddenly, a man advanced towards the stage pulling a shotgun out from under his coat as he approached. Malcolm, standing out in the open, his security too far away to help, could do little else but look on as his attacker pointed the weapon his direction and pulled the trigger. From What's the Story Sounds, you're listening to Crosshairs. In each episode you'll be immersed in some of the most significant and shocking assassination attempts and successes in human history. From meticulously planned hits to killings gone wrong and the moments in time which led to murder. 
So train your ears and listen as we walk you towards the moment where victim and assassin collide. This is Crosshairs, Episode 9, Malcolm X. Let's go right back to the beginning, to when Malcolm X was born in Omaha, Nebraska, on May 19th, 1925. Malcolm was the fourth of seven children born to Earl and Louise Little. Earl was a Baptist preacher who had also trained as a carpenter and was the son of former slaves. Growing up in Georgia, Earl had found himself rebelling against a society which said he must kowtow to white people at all times his willingness to talk back earning him a reputation as uppity. He eventually relocated to Philadelphia, where he soon latched on to the teachings of Marcus Garvey, an activist and founder of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, or UNIA. Where Garvey differed from many contemporary black activists, such as those affiliated with the NAACP, was in his promotion of black separatism over integration. He countered the notion of white supremacy with black supremacy and believed that black people's best possible future lay not in America, where they had been so ill-treated for so long, but by returning to their homeland of Africa. And it was during a trip to Montreal to hear Garvey speak that Earl met Louise. She was 20 years old and working as a seamstress and housekeeper, having moved to Canada from the Caribbean island of Grenada. Earl, now 29 and with three children from a previous marriage, married Louise and brought her back to Philadelphia. They moved to Omaha after Earl's brother James found a job in a meatpacking company and encouraged them to join him there. The newlyweds arrived in the state at a particularly volatile time in its history. Just two years earlier, a race riot sparked by the arrest of a 41-year-old black man named Will Brown, accused of raping a 19-year-old white woman, resulted in Brown's lynching by a frenzied mob. This was followed not long after by the establishment of the first local unit of the Ku Klux Klan in Nebraska. They were living in powder keg times, but nevertheless, Earl and Louise set up a chapter of the UNIA in their new city. Their activism soon brought them to the attention of the Klan, who wasted no time in taking advantage of their growing influence in the state intimidating Earl's boss at the meatpacking plant into letting him go. Earl made ends meet as an independent contractor, offering his carpentry services to anyone who needed them, but the clan's persistent harassment of the family eventually resulted in them having to relocate. They landed in Lansing, Michigan, where things went from bad to worse for the little family. Earl's UNIA activity cost him his job as a carpenter with a local contractor forcing him to freelance yet again, for lower wages. Meanwhile, the home that the family had purchased on the west side of the city turned out to be zoned for white residents only. Informed of this by a group of hostile white neighbors after the fact, the Littles refused their offer to buy the property back at a reduced price. Weeks later, the family woke to the sound of an explosion in the middle of the night. The house was ablaze. The Lansing Fire Department was called but they refused to respond to a fire at a colored residence. The house burned to the ground, and Earl ended up being held in jail on suspicion of arson. 
The charges were ultimately dismissed, and the family regrouped, Earl building them a new home south of the capital. But it's not hard to see how tensions were reaching boiling point. Malcolm and his siblings were the only black children in their school and were forced to endure all manner of racial slurs. Their mother encouraged them to rise above it, to not give their classmates the satisfaction that their words were having any impact. Earl and Louise instilled their children with their own values regarding black pride, making sure that they never operated under the illusion that they were somehow inferior to their white peers regardless of how their treatment and circumstances might lead them to believe otherwise. Malcolm would often accompany his father to the UNIA meetings, where, witnessing his father's unyielding belief in the long-term goal of black prosperity firsthand, left a significant impression on him. His admiration for his father made it all the more painful when in 1931, when Malcolm was just six years old, Earl Little died. Earl had been run over by a tram, the impact severing his left leg and crushing his abdomen. He'd been running to catch it. It was the last tram of the night, when he tripped and slid underneath the wheels. It was a devastating blow for the little family. Louise had given birth to her seventh child just four months earlier, and the insurance company refused to pay out Earl's policy, demanding the family prove it was not a suicide. Meanwhile, Rumors began to spread that Earl's death hadn't been an accident, but that he was in fact murdered by the Black Legion, an offshoot of the Ku Klux Klan. Eventually, the pressures of trying to provide for her family and keep up with mortgage payments proved too much for Louise, and she was committed to Kalamazoo State Hospital after being ruled insane. Malcolm, by now 13, was placed into foster care along with his brother Philbert. The next eight years proved to be a tumultuous time for Malcolm. He dropped out of high school at the age of 14 after being told that his plans to pursue a career in law were an unrealistic goal for someone of his background. Malcolm, who was a good student, was crushed by how easily his dreams had been discounted. He moved to Boston to live with his half-sister, Ella, where over the years he worked a series of odd jobs, from helping out at an auto parts shop to a stint as a shoeshine boy. His next stop was Harlem, where he started running with a crowd who weren't averse to bending the odd rule or two. Among this new company, he found himself engaged in drug dealing, racketeering, and even pimping. Malcolm had several run-ins with the police over the years, getting picked up for petty theft and having to be bailed out by his family. But eventually, his luck ran out. It was 1946, Malcolm had committed a series of burglaries, targeting homes in wealthy neighborhoods that he had surveilled with a team of three Armenian girls, acquaintances of his posing as saleswomen. He was picked up trying to collect a stolen watch he had taken it to be repaired and was handed down an eight to ten year sentence for breaking and entering and larceny. Malcolm's imprisonment was a formative waypoint on his journey to becoming one of the most vital figures in the history of the civil rights movement. Malcolm, or prisoner number 22843, spent his first few weeks of incarceration trying to adjust to the smell of feces emanating from the wooden buckets which served as toilets in each cell. At the same time, he wrestled with withdrawal from cocaine and marijuana, having to settle for substitutes like nutmeg mixed with cold water 
a prison recipe which supposedly imitated the effects of smoking a joint. Fiercely anti-religion at this point, he earned the nickname Satan for his penchant for cursing God and the Bible whilst doing laps of his cell. Malcolm's views on religion changed drastically during his time in prison, however, a process that started when he met a man named John Bembry. Thirteen years Malcolm Sr., the two met while stamping license plates, one of many jobs Malcolm worked at during his time behind bars. Bembry was a self-taught philosopher of sorts, having spent countless hours in the prison library, imbibing the words of everyone from Kant to Nietzsche. He grew to command the attention of his fellow inmates as he waxed lyrical on a broad range of topics during games of dominoes in the dusty yard. Malcolm paid attention as Bembry took complex ideas like human nature and free will and made them accessible to his less educated companions, even managing to undermine Malcolm's confidence in his own commitment to atheism on more than one occasion. From him, he learned the power of speech, particularly speech that was built on strong ideological foundations and presented in a way that the audience could latch onto. Inspired both by Bembry and letters from his family, he began a correspondence course in English. He soon became a keen reader, devouring the works of Shakespeare, and eventually even began studying Latin. Wanting to rekindle his relationship with his family, he began writing letters to them. And it was during his correspondence with his brother Wilfred that he first learned about the religious movement, which would come to play a major part in the next chapter of his life. What his brother described to him as the natural religion for the black man, the nation of Islam. Originating in the US in the 1930s, the Nation of Islam, or NOI, is a religious and political organization that was established to further the cause of black unity. It has its religious basis in Islam, but differed from mainstream Islamic beliefs in a number of ways. Amongst other things, it preached black self-reliance and the eventual return of the African diaspora to Africa, where they would no longer be subjugated by white people. It contended that black people were the Earth's superior race and had been usurped of their rightful place in the world by the white devil. The letters Malcolm received from his brother telling him about this new movement intrigued him. Whilst visiting with him in prison, he extolled the virtues of the NOI, and in particular its leader, a man named Elijah Muhammad, who Wilfred had been working with in his base in Chicago. Malcolm was curious, albeit cautious. He initially was unsure what to make of this white devil concept, which flew in the face of his usual approach of engaging with anyone regardless of race, class, or gender. Reflecting on his time in prison in his biography, Malcolm wrote, I disliked how Negro convicts stuck together so much. However, the more he mused on the teachings of the NOI, the more he began to reevaluate all of his past interactions with white people, uncovering moments of discrimination and prejudice that seemed to confirm what Elijah Muhammad and his followers were saying about the white race. He took the step of writing directly to Muhammad, who replied, welcoming him to what he referred to as the true knowledge. Emboldened by a new sense of purpose and belonging, he joined the Prison Debate Society and distinguished himself against visiting teams from Ivy League universities. Soon, he was actively recruiting for the NOI, 
converting a number of fellow inmates to the cause, as well as campaigning for their religious rights, such as demanding the prison meet their dietary requirements. In a series of letters to his brother Philbert during this period, he signed off as Malcolm X Little. This was the first time he was recorded referring to himself by the name with which he would come to be known by. The X in question was an idea adopted from the NOI's teachings. Elijah encouraged his followers to abandon their slave names, the X signifying that their true identity, that of their ancestors, had been lost. By the time Malcolm was paroled in 1952, he felt ready to find his place in the world. Malcolm moved to Detroit, where his brother Wilfred found him a job and somewhere to live. He quickly became an active member of the NOI's Detroit Temple, where he proved to be a stellar recruiter, though his strict adherence to the rules and willingness to call out those who fell below his high standards rubbed some of his fellow believers the wrong way. Eventually, Malcolm found himself back on the East Coast, tasked with growing one of the NOI's less established chapters in Boston, where he became the first minister. His responsibilities quickly grew, and before long, he was overseeing the entire Northeast, the temples he looked after soon becoming some of the fastest growing in the entire organization. The Nation of Islam's increased popularity did not go unnoticed by the FBI, who kept tabs on each new temple that sprang up, eventually cultivating a network of informers to keep them up to date with the organization's plans. They took a particular interest in Malcolm, who had first come to their attention when he wrote a letter to President Truman, voicing his opposition to the Korean War while still in prison. They even brought him in for an interview, where he admitted to being a Muslim when asked, but understated his seniority in the organization. Malcolm's growing influence within the NOI coincided with the surge in support for the civil rights movement in the US. Black Americans were demanding an end to segregation, black voter suppression, and discriminatory employment and housing practices. The prominent leaders in that struggle, Dr. Martin Luther King amongst them, shared some beliefs with Malcolm and his colleagues in the NOI, but they differed on as many fronts. Much like the gulf that existed between the NAACP and the Garveyites in his parents' time, the civil rights movement's goal of integration did not line up with the nation's pursuit of black separatism. Malcolm, at this point at least, wholeheartedly rejected the idea of racial integration, deriding it as coffee with a cracker. Another point of difference was on the means to achieve their respective aims. The civil rights movement was built on a foundation of nonviolent protest, whereas Malcolm was not opposed to using force when necessary to protect and further the interests of black Americans. He was not afraid to openly criticize King, going as far as to call him a fool and an Uncle Tom, who taught Negroes to be defenseless. King, for his part, chose not to trade barbs with Malcolm and the NOI, preferring to preach unity. Other prominent civil rights figures didn't share King's restraint, with Thurgood Marshall, who would later go on to become the US Supreme Court's first African-American justice, labeling the NOI a bunch of thugs organized from prisons and jails. In 1958, Malcolm married Betty X, a member of his Harlem temple. Betty, born in Georgia, had moved to New York to become a nurse. 
There was no courtship before their union, as was customary in the NOI. They went on to have six children together, all daughters. The two youngest, twins, Malika and Malak, born seven months after his eventual assassination. Malcolm's star was rising, but it only truly began to shine after his participation in the 1959 television documentary, The Hate That Hate Produced. During the program, which explored the rise of black nationalism, when asked if he believed all white people were evil, Malcolm replied, History is best qualified to reward all research, and we don't have any historic example where we have found that they have collectively as a people done good. He also took the opportunity to throw barbs at pro-integration civil rights organizations like the NAACP, claiming that in reality, they were beholden to the interests of white people. The broadcast was a watershed moment for the civil rights movement in America. For many white viewers, it was their first exposure to a radical alternative to the messages of peace and unity promoted by better-known figures like Martin Luther King. For black viewers, many felt like they were being spoken to by someone that understood their struggles for the first time. Attendance at NOI meetings in the weeks after the broadcast spiked, the organization's membership quickly doubling to 60,000. Malcolm's charisma was indeed undeniable, but his star power was not enough for many of his younger admirers to overlook the stringent religious side of his organization. One that had separate seating for men and women at meetings, forbade the eating of pork, and even prohibited its members from smoking. Nevertheless, Malcolm continued his recruiting drive, establishing temples in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Atlanta. Malcolm was undoubtedly becoming one of the NOI's most important figures, but he was growing increasingly disillusioned with its leadership. On April 27, 1962, two LAPD officers carried out an unprovoked attack against several Muslims outside Temple No. 27. The encounter attracted the attention of dozens more Muslims from inside the mosque, and the situation escalated rapidly. A further 70 officers arrived on the scene, and seven Muslims were shot. One of them, Ronald Stokes, the mosque secretary, was shot and killed as he approached an officer with his hands in the air. It was later ruled a justifiable homicide. Malcolm was determined that the LAPD would answer for this injustice. He had long preached about the sanctity of Muslim lives and the consequences should any of their own come to harm. Members of the Fruit of Islam, the security and disciplinary wing of the NOI, obtained the address of one of the policemen involved. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The reprisal Malcolm and his followers wanted never materialized, however, on Elijah Muhammad's orders. The NOI leader forbade any retaliation. Malcolm was frustrated. 
It was the first in a series of incidents that prompted him to question his unwavering loyalty to Mohammed. His relationship with the man was further complicated by rumors that Elijah had engaged in extramarital affairs with several NOI secretaries. Malcolm took his concerns to Elijah's son, Wallace, who confirmed them, including one particularly egregious incident involving a woman named Sister Evelyn Williams. A former girlfriend of Malcolm's, he'd brought Evelyn into the NOI where she ended up working as a secretary for Muhammad. She later gave birth to a baby out of wedlock and was subsequently forced to leave the NOI. Elijah was the father of her child. It was a painful revelation for Malcolm, exacerbated by his own personal connection to Evelyn. The growing tensions between Malcolm and the NOI leadership came to a head in 1963 after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. On December 1st, after a speaking engagement in Manhattan, Malcolm was asked for his thoughts on the killing. Elijah Muhammad had expressly forbidden NOI members from commenting on the assassination, an instruction Malcolm chose to ignore. He described JFK's death at the hand of Lee Harvey Oswald as a case of chickens coming home to roost, a consequence of Kennedy twiddling his thumbs in the lead-up to the murder of South Vietnamese President No Dim Diem weeks before. Elijah, furious at such a blatant act of insubordination, suspended Malcolm for 90 days. On March the 8th, 1964, Malcolm announced that he was leaving the Nation of Islam. The widening gulf between Malcolm and his former leader, Elijah Muhammad, had coincided with a shift in Malcolm's attitudes towards the civil rights movement. He took note of their progress on the legislative front and even went to Washington to witness the debate on the Civil Rights Bill of 1964, just weeks after leaving the NOI. It would be the one and only time he and King would meet face to face. They crossed paths on Capitol Hill, where they shook hands and exchanged pleasantries. Surrounded by the press, Malcolm stated, I'm throwing myself in the heart of the civil rights struggle. Malcolm wasted no time making his next move, laying out plans for a new group, the Organization of Afro-American Unity, a secular group whose goal was to advance the rights of African-Americans, the OAAU, aimed to deliver on what Malcolm's less faith-orientated supporters had long been asking for, a radical political movement unfettered by the strictures of his Muslim faith. Where the OAAU differed from the contemporaneous civil rights organizations was in its emphasis on cooperation amongst black people worldwide, reconnecting African-Americans with their ancestral home. Malcolm felt that the best way to put pressure on Washington would be to make his case on the international stage. He traveled to Africa, making stops in Egypt, Ethiopia, Nigeria, Senegal, Sudan, and Ghana. He did radio interviews, made television appearances, and spoke at dozens of universities. His goal, to convince an African nation to charge the United States with human rights violations in the United Nations. He managed to get a meeting with Kwame Nkrumah, the president of Ghana, but he declined to go along with Malcolm's plan, fearful that taking on the US in the UN would lead to American interference in Ghana. By the time Malcolm arrived back in the United States, relations with his former colleagues at the NOI were at an all-time low. 
They were trying to force Malcolm and his family out of their home in Queens, which the NOI owned. Malcolm, who up to this point had been polite about Mohammed when asked about his former leader, abandoned all pretense of goodwill and began openly criticizing Elijah, drawing attention to his numerous illegitimate children in the process. The NOI suit to evict Malcolm and his family was successful, and they were ordered to vacate the property. Whilst bullish and public, privately, Malcolm was growing increasingly concerned for his and his family's safety. He was often worried he was being followed and would never sit with his back to an open window. His paranoia proved to be well-founded when at 2.30 a.m. on February 21st, 1965, the night before a hearing to postpone the eviction, several Molotov cocktails were thrown through the windows of the family home on 97th Street. Malcolm, woken up by his children's screams, was able to evacuate his pregnant wife and four children before the house went up in flames, taking most of their possessions with it. For the second time in his life, his home burned down in front of his very eyes. Except this time, the culprits were former friends. It had become clear that the Nation of Islam wanted rid of their most famous defector and were willing to go to great lengths to achieve that aim. The firebombing of the Elmhurst house was the latest in a series of threats and attacks made on Malcolm. In private meetings, Elijah Muhammad would refer to Malcolm as the chief hypocrite, stressing the need for him to be silenced. A few months earlier, whilst on a trip to Chicago, Malcolm and his team, accompanied by a journalist named Chuck Stone, were making their way back to their hotel. When they exited the elevator, Stone was the first to round the corner on Malcolm's floor, where he was greeted by a short black man dressed in a long coat and brandishing a sawn-off shotgun. Their eyes met, and the man, startled, turned on his heel and fled the scene. Stone was certain that had Malcolm been the first one to turn that corner, he'd have been shot. Soon, whispers began to emerge that the NOI leadership had set a deadline for their former protégé's assassination. Malcolm was to be taken out in the 10 days leading up to February 26th. The date was notable in NOI circles. Known as Saviour's Day, it was a commemoration of the birth of the founder of the Nation of Islam, Master Wallace Fard Muhammad. On February 21st, five days before Saviour's Day, 400 people filtered into the Audubon Theatre in Manhattan to see Malcolm. His speaking engagements typically had tight security, but he had asked his team to forego the usual body searches on this occasion, concerned that the optics would turn off the young, educated, and non-Muslim crowd he hoped to build his new movement on. It was a decision that baffled his team, who felt that in light of the attack on Malcolm's home mere days earlier, security should, if anything, be tightened. It was an argument that they lost. As the crowd took to their seats, backstage Malcolm grew tense. He'd arranged for notable Harlem activist and school desegregation campaigner, Milton Galamison, to open the event. He'd be followed by music from Ralph Cooper, a popular local DJ. The night before the event, however, both men had cancelled. Benjamin Goodman, Malcolm's assistant, was told to open the program in their stead. Malcolm's frustration at the last-minute changes to the running order was compounded by the fact that his new organization 
did not yet have a complete charter, setting out their aims and objectives. He had spent the week prior to the meeting promoting the OAAU gathering during radio interviews, at college lectures, and having his people spread the news by word of mouth. He had talked up the OAAU's program launch as the opening salvo of a new political revolution. But to his dismay, when the time came, they didn't have their I's dotted or T's crossed. Back in the Audubon, Goodman, who had been speaking for 20 minutes, heard the words, make it plain, spoken by Malcolm, who was sitting on the stage behind him. The expression was a signal for Goodman to wrap things up, which he did, introducing Malcolm as a man that would give his life for his people. Malcolm stood up, taking his position at the plywood rostrum. His speech, which he carried in his hand, was written on several three-by-five cards. Behind him was a pastoral scene, scenery for a different event. The paint now faded. He greeted the crowd in his usual manner, but before Malcolm could begin his speech proper, a scuffle broke out between two men in the audience. One of them shouted, Get your hands out of my pocket! And as security advanced towards the commotion, a man seated near the rear of the ballroom stood up. In one hand, he held a rolled-up sock stuffed with a strip of photographic film. In the other, a match. He struck the match and lit the film, throwing his makeshift smoke bomb to the floor. A woman screamed. The audience, previously wrapped with attention, were now understandably unsettled, getting to their feet and scrambling for the exits as the ballroom filled with smoke. Two security guards left their positions at the front of the stage, making a beeline for the man who had thrown the smoke bomb. Malcolm, determined that the meeting not descend into anarchy, stepped out from behind the podium, pleading with the crowd. Now, now, brothers, break it up. Taking advantage of the chaos enveloping the ballroom, a man in the fourth row raced towards the stage. William 25X, also known as William Bradley, produced a sawn-off shotgun from under his coat, wrapped in a brown suit jacket, and pointed it at Malcolm before pulling the trigger. The blast tore through Malcolm's chest, lifting him off his feet. He landed heavily. Two other men advanced on the stage with pistols drawn. Thomas Hayden and Leon Davis opened fire on Malcolm, hitting him in the left ankle and both thighs, the gunfire ringing off the walls and ceiling of the ballroom, soon followed by cries and screams. The shooters, satisfied they had done enough to ensure their target would not get up, turned and made for the rear exit, using the panicked crowd for cover. Betty, currently pregnant with twins who'd been sitting with her four daughters, dove to the ground when the shooting had started, wrapping her arms around her children in an attempt to shield them from the carnage erupting on stage. Reuben Francis, Malcolm's head of security, took after the gunman. He opened fire and hit Hagen, who also went by the name of Mujahid Abdul Halim in the right thigh. Hagen dropped his pistol, and whilst limping for the exit, found himself overcome by a mob of Malcolm's supporters, and they wanted blood. He collapsed in a sea of kicks and punches, but was saved from a potentially grisly end by the authorities, who dragged him into a police car and drove him to hospital. Back on the stage of the Audubon, Yuri Koshiyama, a Japanese-American human rights activist, who had met Malcolm after being arrested during a rally protesting discriminatory hiring practices in Brooklyn, cradled his head in her lap. Jean Roberts, a member of Malcolm's security detail, tore open Malcolm's shirt, 
revealing several holes in his chest. A further examination of Malcolm's back showed no exit wounds. He checked for a pulse and found one, but it was weak. Robert started to give Malcolm mouth to mouth. He carried on for ten minutes before stopping, exhausted, and asked if someone else would take over. Though he wasn't ready to admit it in front of Betty, he knew it was over. Malcolm was gone. Roberts was not just a security guard. He was, in fact, an undercover cop. He had joined the OAAU ten months earlier. Proficient in hand-to-hand -hand combat since his time in the Navy, he'd been handpicked to protect Malcolm that night. He'd joined the NYPD after being discharged from the Navy and almost immediately was tasked with infiltrating Malcolm's new organization, reporting to the Bureau of Special Services and Investigations. They in turn passed on Robert's reports about Malcolm's movement to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, who had become even more interested in Malcolm following his departure from the NOI. A week before Malcolm's death, during a speech to the members of the OAAU, in what was effectively a practice run for the following week's launch, Roberts had intercepted a man wearing a red bow tie as he walked up the aisle towards the stage. As Roberts approached, the man took a seat. Roberts couldn't shake the feeling that the man was an NOI member. He phoned his colleagues at the NYPD, telling them that he thought he'd witnessed a dress rehearsal for this man's assassination. To Roberts' shock, the police responded to their young officer's fears by reducing the number of officers outside the ballroom. When Roberts later reported he had attempted mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, he was castigated by his superiors. Moments after Malcolm took his last breaths on stage, an FBI informer seated in the ballroom audience relayed the news of Malcolm's death to J. Edgar Hoover, who quickly passed it up the chain to President Lyndon Johnson. An ambulance eventually arrived at the theatre and brought Malcolm's body to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, where he was declared dead. He had been shot 21 times. Despite firing the shot that killed Malcolm X, William Bradley was not arrested for the crime. After fleeing the theatre, he had driven, along with Leon Davis and the men who had started the fight and set off the smoke bomb, to the Newark Mosque, where they met with senior ministers from the NOI. As well as Hagen, who was already in police custody, Witnesses later identified the other gunmen as Nation of Islam members Norman 3X Butler and Thomas 15X Johnson, whose real names were Mohammed A. Aziz and Khalil Islam. Within 10 days of the shooting, both of them were in custody. A week later, the three men were charged with Malcolm's murder. During the trial, both Aziz and Islam offered credible alibis contradicting testimony from 10 eyewitnesses. There was no physical evidence linking them to the crime, and when Hagen took the stand, he stressed that the other two men were innocent. Despite all this, the three men were sentenced to life in prison. William Bradley, a former machine gunner in the Marine Corps, who had acted as an enforcer for the Nation of Islam, matched the appearance of one of the eyewitnesses who described the shotgun-wielding assailant as dark-skinned, stocky, and wearing a beard, making him an unlikely ringer for Islam, who was light-skinned and clean-shaven. It would take years of investigative work by journalists and documentary filmmakers before Bradley's role in Malcolm's death came to light, however. 
In the meantime, Aziz and Islam would go on to spend a combined 42 years behind bars, serving their time in some of New York's toughest maximum security prisons. They were released in 1985 and 1987, respectively. In 2021, after years of work by The Innocence Project, a non-profit which provides legal aid to the wrongly convicted, they were exonerated. Aziz was 83 when his name was cleared. Islam sadly never lived to see the day, passing away in 2009. William Bradley, who later changed his name to Al-Mustafa Shabazz, was never charged with Malcolm's murder and maintained his innocence until his death in 2018. Hagen was released from prison in 2010, having spent over 40 years behind bars. Leon Davis was never charged for his role in Malcolm's murder. Five days after Malcolm's death, speaking at a Saviour's Day event, Elijah Muhammad denied any involvement, but said that Malcolm X got just what he preached. Multiple members of the NOI later confirmed, however, that the organization's senior leadership had ordered the hit on Malcolm. It's also alleged that the FBI, having placed informants throughout the organization, had foreknowledge of the attack on Malcolm and allowed it to happen, making a conscious decision not to intervene. There was an outpouring of grief for Malcolm in the days and weeks after his untimely death. His funeral, which took place in his home base of Harlem, was attended by over 20,000 mourners. Malcolm X remains a key figure in the history of the fight for black rights. His autobiography has sold over five million copies. He was buried at Ferncliff Cemetery in New York. Speaking on his death, Martin Luther King said, while we did not always see eye to eye on methods to solve the race problem, I always had a deep affection for Malcolm and felt that he had a great ability to put his finger on the existence and root of the problem. He was an eloquent spokesman for his point of view, and no one can honestly doubt that Malcolm had a great concern for the problems that we face as a race. Crosshairs is a What's the Story Sounds original podcast series. It's presented by me, Jonathan Guy-Lewis. Our music is supplied by KPM. Sound design is by Tom Bruins. This episode was written and produced by Jack O'Kennedy. Executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Sophie Ellis and Daryl Brown. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please give it a rating and review. There's a new episode of Crosshairs every week. And if you can't wait for that, why not check out more What's the Story content at whatsthestorysounds.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.